Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. I'm hoping you don't regret it because we got a crazy text to unpack today. We're going to talk speaking in tongues, prophecy, women being silent in church. This is a minefield for Christians, and we're going to go through it. So buckle up. Hope you stay with. Here we go. You remember recess as a kid? It was the best, wasn't it? I lived for recess. Like school to me growing up was just like this countdown to recess. I think I did more math watching the clock and figuring out how many minutes I had left than I actually did in math class. And if you, you remember, like, if you remember recess, you remember the, the playground had like all these little pods of kids all over the playground. Like some girls were doing like the hopscotch and a few kids were playing four square and the nerds were sitting on the, si- the swings waiting to go back inside so they can read. And then, and this was my crew, the kids that were playing football out in the field. And if you were in my group playing football out in the field, you'll know this. We didn't actually play football, did we? We played like maybe three plays and then just fought the rest of the time. You know, just jawing at each other and arguing and complaining and whining. Uh, I remember my teacher one time coming out onto the field. Uh, she, was a, uh, she was a big old scary woman. And she said, you know, if you boys would just shut up, you'd actually be able to do what you came out here to do and play football. It's true. She had a point. A lot of us, no, okay, all of us, are out there on the football field of life, so to speak. There's a playground football field somewhere in your life where you're arguing, complaining, drama. Oh, it's not an actual football field. Maybe your football field during the week is your marriage. And if you could just stop fighting, maybe you could do what you actually got married to do. Enjoy a relationship, build a family, have fun, make memories. Instead, you're just wasting your time, jawing at each other, keeping score, whining, and competing. Or maybe your playground football field during your week is your career. You know, you came into your career to contribute to society, maybe change a community, do what you're good at, but instead you're spending more energy just playing the politics and, and arguing. Or you sign on to social media, you know, to connect with some old friends and stay connected. But instead, you're spending all your time just whining and comparing yourself. And you know, just like my my old teacher stomping out on the field, you know that if you could just stop all that, you'd enjoy that part of your life way more and do what you actually came to do. And come on, there's, there's a piece of your life, it's like a playground football field. Drama, arguing, comparing, whining. Something came to mind, didn't it? We should talk about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we're at. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We started 1 Corinthians in January. We've just been walking through the book together. We're actually finishing this book up next week. And uh, we haven't announced this yet, but I'll I'll let you know in two weeks. So on the 20th, we're starting a new series. We're going to go through the book of Exodus this summer, which I'm like super pumped for. Been working on that a little bit already. A super fun book. But there's some great stuff here toward the end of 1 Corinthians that I'm excited to hit as well. Now, I will say, chapter 14 is arguably the most difficult chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. Some would even say this is the most difficult chapter in the Bible. And you'll see why when we get into it. Paul is going to address the practice of speaking in tongues, or miraculously speaking a foreign language. We call that tongues. And it doesn't matter your church background, whether you're church or non-church, this topic gets everyone really nervous. So if you come from more of a a charismatic or a Pentecostal background, uh, which is the circle that my wife became a believer in, if you're more charismatic and and you like tongues, you're probably nervous about what I'm about to say. 
Or if you come from a more Baptist background, like me, you're more reserved when it comes to this issue, you too are probably nervous about what I'm going to say. If you don't have church in your background, you are going to sit here thinking you've all lost your minds. This chapter is an equal opportunity offender. So if you get uncomfortable at all this morning, just know you're not the only one. You're probably sitting next to somebody who's uncomfortable too. We're all in this together. Actually, to be fair, I will say this. This chapter does get picked on. It is far less complicated than most people make it out to be. This is not very complicated. You know, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we talked about submission, we talked about how there's always a theological principle that is driving the passage. And our job as we study scripture is to boil the text down to that theological principle. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's going to seem complicated. I mean, we're talking about speaking in tongues. We're talking about prophecy. There's a verse in here about women not talking in church. Yikes. But when we boil all that down, we find a very simple yet powerful truth. So the plan is we're just going to jump into the text, unpack it, boil it down, and then we'll come out of it and talk about that theological principle that has everything to do with your life today. But first, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you that this is your word. And God, you will speak today. The question is, is will we listen? And so I ask that you eliminate all distractions, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you engage our minds and open our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms in on 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we enter a city that we've been in since January, Corinth, Greece. The Mediterranean breeze, especially on a day like today, feels so refreshing as it hits your face. And from the marketplace, you can hear the sailors at the harbor off in the distance yelling and directing boats to dock and unload. The heat radiates off the limestone uh, streets and the limestone buildings, making the packed marketplace almost unbearable on a day like today. And kids dash through the street on their way to the shore to cool off in the salty water just next to the harbor. And there, not far from the center of town, you see a building where the Corinthian church meets. It's a small, unassuming little structure. This small, unassuming little structure is meant to be a beacon of light in this very pagan city, but it hasn't been. It's almost like it's a playground football field in there. There's so much fighting in there, so much competing in there, so much comparing in there. This little church mirrors everything around it, but this little church just received a letter, a letter that will change all of that. Paul writes this in verse 1. He writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now I want you to notice the order here. He says, pursue love. We talked about love last week. That was very convicting, wasn't it? Like Some of us need to spend a few more years in chapter 13 before we move on to chapter 14. But Paul says here, he says, pursue love, then desire prophecy. What does that mean? So online, you can take these spiritual gift assessments that tell you which gift you have. Uh, I'm not sure how accurate they are. I sometimes like to think of it like, like the Facebook test. You ever see those Facebook tests? You know, like take this test to see which breed of dog you are. And then some of you get really excited about that. You're like, everybody's got to know I'm a poodle. I got to post that. But they have, these, they have these spiritual gift assessments, and they're not like gimmicky like the Facebook test. But, um, but you can take these, and you can see what spiritual gift you have. I, I had to take a few in, in college, and then I've taken a few on staff at the bridge. I always get prophecy as my gift, and I'm always confused. Like, I'm a prophet? I mean, that kind of sounds B.A., but I don't know what that means. I've never really understood what it meant. What does this mean? And Christians like to debate what this means. So some say, well, prophecy means you're God's mouthpiece. Just like the Old Testament prophets spoke on behalf of God, 
You know, so some say prophecy just means that you can speak clearly. You can communicate uh, clearly. Problem with that is nobody uses the word prophecy like that. Not even the Bible. And so what happens is sometimes Christians will take words, and let's redefine this word to fit our theology. We, we can't do that. Prophecy has always included the foretelling of futuristic events. That's what prophecy means. It actually comes from the word prophetuo, which is actually two words combined. The, the word pro, which means to happen before. It's kind of like how we use the, the word pre. So pro, which means before, and then femi, which means to speak. So to speak before. A prophet doesn't mean you can just speak clearly. Otherwise, Jimmy Fallon would be a prophet. It means that you can speak before something happens. So as cool as it would be for me to be a prophet, I'm not a prophet, which is like this huge weight off my shoulders because if I got a prophecy wrong, according to the Old Testament, I should be killed for being a false prophet, so I'm kind of glad I'm not a prophet. But Paul says here, nonetheless, Paul says here, I want you to desire prophecies. What do we even do with this? It's getting a little trippy. If we keep reading, he says, for one who speaks in a tongue, foreign languages, speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And then if you look at verse 3, I hope you have your Bible in front of you. Verse 3 continues on. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So there's two main things that Paul brings up here just in the first few verses. He brings up prophecy and tongues. Prophecy, to speak before something, and tongues, miraculously speaking another language. This is a big, big conversation in church circles. And I think it's kind of funny that it is such a big conversation in church circles because there are only two places in Scripture that tongues is primarily talked about. Just twice. In Acts, when Jesus leaves and the church gets going, and then here in 1 Corinthians 14, a book that reprimands the church. It's very important to, to remember as Christians as we talk about this. Tongues is seen at the beginning of the church and then in the correcting of the church. In the beginning of the church, in the book of Acts, the church begins to speak in tongues. It's a really cool story if you haven't heard this story. Followers of Jesus are in Jerusalem. It's a destination city of travelers coming through who spoke many different languages. And followers of Jesus begin speaking those different languages, languages they didn't know before. And this happened for two reasons. First, it was a sign that the Holy Spirit had come. Something supernatural was taking place. The Holy Spirit is here. And then the second reason it happened was that the message of Jesus Christ could then get into other languages. Those travelers coming through Jerusalem could then take that message and news would spread in their language. This is an event that Christians call Pentecost. And it was for a very specific purpose. It was a sign the Holy Spirit had come and it was to get the message into other languages. Very specific reason. What happened though and it happens today, is Christians really run with this. I mean, it's such a cool thing. I totally get it. Speaking a different language, it's like mysterious. That's super cool. But Christians have abused it. Actually, in 1901, a pastor named Charles Parham, uh, who was a big player in launching the Pentecostal movement, and I'm not slamming the Pentecostal movement. As I said, my wife became a believer through it. But, uh, Charles Parham instructed his students to uh, travel overseas, become missionaries. Good idea. Go be missionaries. But he said, don't do the work of learning their language. Just go there and the Holy Spirit will cause you to speak in tongues like an axe. This led to many people moving overseas and weirding people out by babbling in nonsense languages. It didn't work, and then there was this mass return back to the United States. Charles Parham was not the only one who misunderstood this. Many have, and many do, and the Corinthian church was one of them. And so chapter 14, Paul is correcting that. 
the Corinthian church had taken what had happened at Pentecost and they were using it to fuel their own selfish ends. It became this very feeling-based thing. It became very competitive. It became a show. It became chaos. One of the things that, um, that we have to realize is that in the pagan city of Corinth, non-Christians spoke in tongues all the time to false gods. And it was almost always linked to erotic sexual behavior or emotionalism. So not far from the church, down the street in the temple, there were people speaking in tongues to their false gods and then having sex with each other. That's what was happening in the temple down the street. And what have we seen throughout the series? What is one thing we've seen throughout the, 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 the Corinthian church has done throughout this book? They've taken what is outside of the church and they pull it into the church. And so what happened, tongues, which was legitimately, legitimately happened in Acts, it became this very emotional showy ritual in the church, just like they saw in the temple down the street. The church was pursuing tongues for the feeling they got out of it. Tongues wasn't for its original purpose like in Acts. It was about a feeling. It was about a show. It was about this competition within the church. The truth is, Jesus didn't speak in tongues in Scripture. In fact, uh, Jesus, when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray simply and clearly as if we were talking to Dad because we are talking to Dad. It wasn't showy, it wasn't mysterious, it was very plain, it was very clear. So you might be wondering, okay, Junior, your Baptist roots are coming out here. Are you saying that nobody should speak in tongues? I'm not saying that. Uh, personally, I've never spoken in tongues, so I've never lost any sleep over it. But I would never put God in a box and say it can't happen. I believe it can happen. And I believe it has in rare instances where it was verified for a specific purpose, which is biblical. But I do believe... And some will disagree with me on this, and that's okay. But I do believe that tongues and prophecy was more prevalent in the early church. The reason being is they didn't have this. They didn't have the New Testament com compiled. Prophecy and tongues were a sign that God was communicating because they didn't have this. So it was a sign. And the thing about signs is, signs point us to a destination. Uh, last weekend, I, I went to Madison for uh, Memorial, Memorial Day, and we did some hiking, and my daughter right now, it's like the dorkiest thing, but my oldest daughter's like really into Amish right now. So we went to, up to an Amish community, and it was like Disneyland for her. I mean, we went into this country store, and she was looking for a bonnet, really wants to wear a bonnet. And um, we couldn't find one, so I asked the, the Amish cashier, I was like, where do we find these bonnets that you're wearing? She's like, well, we have to make them. We can't sell them. It's like, oh. She's like, but I will make one for your daughter, and I will mail it to her. And so I gave her some money, and we're like, my daughter's just like waiting at the mailbox every day for this bonnet to come. I'm not quite sure I should like let her wear that and run around the neighborhood. I don't know if she could beat up. Like, it's just kind of weird, but to each their own. But anyway, so we're on the way up to Madison to go up to these Amish communities, and these signs pointing, that are pointing us to Madison as we're on the interstate. When I got to Madison, the signs weren't as necessary because we were in Madison, Prophecy and tongues are called signs. I'm not saying that we've reached our destination. What I am saying is that we have this precious book that has everything God wants us to know. And yes, God can and does act outside and beyond Scripture. But Scripture is always our go-to. It's what we filter everything through. It's our pursuit. It's our specialty. We have this, and we should get to know this better. Whereas the early church didn't have this. And so tongues and prophecy filled in that gap. They were signs that God was speaking. Now we have what God has spoken. I realize I have charismatic friends who would disagree with me on that, 
and maybe you do, that is okay. At the end of the day, we can, we can agree. It's all about Jesus anyways. These are secondary conversations. But here's the thing. Whether we agree on that or not, our job is to take Scripture, boil it down to the theological principle that is driving the passage. And the principle is very clear in the first five verses. People get so hung up on the disagreements. Let's talk about tongues and prophecy and, and all this stuff. And then they miss the, the principle. I don't want us to do that. So let's boil this text down. Paul says that prophecy is better than tongues. Why does he say that? If you look at your scripture, why does he say that? Because it builds up. So whether we believe prophecy and tongues are more prevalent today or not, it doesn't matter. The theological principle is building up people around you. And that is repeated throughout the chapter. Verse 12, he says, excel. Here's what I want you to excel in. Building up the church. And this principle drives all the way through the chapter. Verse 26, he says, let all things be done for building up. But then skip to verse 34. As if this chapter wasn't sticky enough, look at verse 34. As a teaching team, we, we talked about skipping this chapter. But some of you already saw it, and I don't want to shy away from the tough stuff, so let's just get it over with. Verse 34 says that women should keep silent in the churches. You're already nervous for me, aren't you? For they are not permitted to speak. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Some of you ladies talked to me before the service in the church. Shame on you. I don't know how you could have done that. What do we do with this? What do we do? What's going on here? Because this is not a popular verse. right? At first read, pretty sexist, pretty oppressive to women. It doesn't taste good. It seems wrong. I don't like this. I have friends who don't believe the Bible will throw this verse at me. How could you, how could you like study something that says this. Well, let's boil it down, see what we get. Because in reality, once, once you do the homework on it, Paul isn't slamming women, he's actually slapping men. See, Paul doesn't hate women. And Paul was the first one to write, men, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Lay your life down for your wife. I mean, that was unheard of during this time. Paul isn't speaking about women's abilities here. He's actually confronting men for their passivity. See, one of the greatest sins of, of men is that we're passive. It goes back to the garden. Adam was passive when Eve took the fruit. He just kind of followed along. He's passive. Men tend to be passive in the home and in the church. This is why churches, percentage-wise, have more women attending, uh, more women in small groups, and more women serving. If it weren't for women, the church would be in huge trouble. Men would rather sit back. This is why at the bridge we don't do frilly things. A lot of churches will have like, flowers on the stage and lots of purples around the church and the services are more aimed at women. Things are just more feminine and nice. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just not us. We have more basic colors. We don't dress up. We don't make things frilly because we'd rather get the guy who'd, we, we, we want to get the guy who'd rather be working on his truck on Sunday morning to come into church and not feel like he's part of his mama's book club. And part of the reason that we think that way is because we know men are passive and are going to try to use any excuse they can to be passive. It's very important to remember as we look at the context of this. In the Corinthian church, the services were becoming a circus. Chaos, babbling over each other. Uh, people, primarily women, were speaking up over each other. It was like this introvert's nightmare. Like women were standing up and yelling out mid-service. I mean, this stuff didn't even happen in the temples down the street. So Paul is saying here, a lot of this chaos would just calm down if you went home and talked it through with the other half. A lot of this chaos would just calm down if you went home and talked it through with your passive husband. Talking it through with your passive husband might actually get him to step up and lead. 
I'm not saying women aren't smart enough or aren't sharp enough to speak in a church. What I'm saying is that when women keep on speaking up over and over and over and over and over, that gives men license to be passive, and they will take that license every single time. So why don't you try to get them involved more by going through them? That'll encourage their leadership while also calming a lot of this chaos down. Think of it like my wife. My wife, I mentioned this before, she's type A personality. Uh, she's very smart. She's smarter than me. I'm the opposite of her. Uh, I'm, I'd rather not talk. She would rather talk. She's extroverted. I'm introverted. She'll have friends over. I go hide. That's just, that's just how we work. But I can't tell you how many times we'll be talking about a decision and, and we disagree. And then she'll kiss me and say, just take the lead on this. You're the man. I like it when you lead. I want you to lead. Well, that makes me want to step up all the more for her. She makes me feel like big stuff, like she's speaking into my leadership. Paul's asking the Corinthian church, can you just do that? Stop trying to get the spotlight and interrupting the service. Stop trying to get the attention. Just go to your husbands. Encourage them out of their passivity, out of the back seat, by running things by them. That'll not only get the men involved more, but it'll help calm this chaos down. I know, it doesn't taste good reading this verse. But if you think about it in context, it is a pretty brilliant solution. But this seems like a completely different topic than the beginning of the chapter, doesn't it? it starts off by talking about prophecy in tongues, and then he tells women this. It seems like two completely different topics. Except when you boil this down too, you find the exact same theological principle as the beginning of the chapter. Build each other up. Paul's saying here in verse 34, he's saying, ladies, can you just build up your man? Can you speak life into his leadership by going through him more? That, that builds him up. That's this, this whole text boiled down to that theological principle. And the word for this principle that is driving the text is this word right here, edification. This is more of a Bible word. We don't really use this word much today, but it should be part of our vocabulary. It is one of the reasons that we are meeting together right now is for edification to build up the body, to encourage each other. Not false flattery or blowing smoke or even being nice, but building each other up. Edification. Get this, in this chapter alone, chapter 14, in this chapter alone, in the original language, Paul uses the word edification six times. Six times. Now here's the rule of thumb when we study scripture. As you read scripture, look for repeated words. If you're reading a chapter and you find a word is repeated more than once, it's probably important. Three times, definitely important. That, that's worth circle highlighting or underlining. Paul uses this word six times. So we look at chapter 14, and many look, look at him and say, oh, this is a complicated chapter. This is a messy chapter. I mean, again, it's one that we almost skipped over. Tongues, prophecy, women being silent. These are touchy subjects, and Christians disagree about different parts of it. But it's not that complicated. Boil the chapter down to edification. Build those up you do church with. Build up your spouse. Build up people with your words. This isn't necessarily about tongues and prophecy. It's not even about women speaking in church. It's about edification. And it's this approach that brings peace and clarity to the conflict you find yourself in, to the drama you find yourself in. That part of your life that elicits drama, that part of your life you got conflict going on, part of your life you got a lot of awkwardness, your playground football field, so to speak, whether it's work or in-laws or friends or family, is this little guy right here that changes everything. I wonder how many of our marriages would actually be more fun if we applied this. I wonder how many of us are this right here away from having the marriage we want. Just got to stop 
picking at them for every little friggin' thing and I'm going to be intentional about building them up to be the man that I want them to be or to be the woman I want her to be. How different would our marriages look if we really owned this? How, how, much, how many of us would be just more likable if we owned this? How much of our social media wouldn't look like dumpster fires if we followed this? How much of our leadership would excel if we decided, I'm just going to build people up? I mean, this is so simple. Why do we struggle with this so much? Three observations from the text. Number one, your tongue gives life or death. Your tongue gives life or death. Every interaction you have, every comment you make, every conversation you find yourself in, every text you send, every post you make, every comment you leave, every email you send, every joke you tell, it all gives life or death. And if you really sit in that and think about that for a while, that is a very, very heavy reality. The words you spoke over breakfast this morning, the words you spoke on your way into church, did one or the other, life or death, every time you open your mouth. I know it sounds extreme, but it's true. Look at this. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your words give life or death, period. I shared this verse with my daughters a couple weeks ago. Right now we're, we're working on how we talk to each other. And so I, I shared this verse. And the problem with growing up a pastor's kid is if dad shares a verse, you get a sermon with it. And so I told my girls over dinner, I said, every time you speak to each other, every time you talk to your mom, every time you talk to me, every time we talk to you, it's either life or death. And, uh, and so this last week, it, so often, you know, if I hear them fighting or saying something, I'll stand up and say, hey, was that life or death? What was it? It's death, dad. <laughs> now it's, it was when they, so when they tattle on each other, this happened last night, uh, one of the girls runs in the room and goes, dad, my sister just spoke death to me. <laughs> This isn't just for kids, though. In fact, I would argue this is more for adults. And some of us, come on, some of us, we're really bad at this. Can you remember the last time you thought, I'm going to intentionally go and build that person up? The last time you thought, I'm going to go into this meeting and just really encourage them. Some of us are insufferable. Some of us are hard to be married to. Some of us are hard to work with. Some of us are hard to do group with. Some of us are hard to be friends with on social media because we don't get this. Life is like this big playground football field, just jawing and negativity and critical and whiny. It's just death. Your tongue speaks life or death. It's one or the other. It builds up or tears down. It is that simple. Actually, this summer, I'm running with our, our camp interns up at camp, and it's more of an excuse for me to be able to move up move up to camp this summer. But uh, each morning and evening, I'm going to hang out with our interns and just talk about life and their futures and ministry and, and leadership and all that. And this verse is actually the summer theme verse. I don't know it yet, but it's, it's going to be. I have bracelets being made with this imprinted on them because the truth is their experience at camp this summer will come down to how much life is spoken between them. They could have the worst, they could clean toilets all summer long and have a blast of a summer if they're speaking life to each other. But if they're speaking death, it doesn't matter what job they have. They could be just laying by the lake all summer, best job in the world. It would be a horrible summer if they're just speaking death. And that is some of us right now. Life's fine. You didn't marry the wrong person. In fact, your job isn't that bad. But you're unhappy. Marriage is no fun. Kids are pulling away. Work is miserable. You don't have healthy relationships because what comes out of your mouth is just constant death and you're killing everything and everyone around you. 
Your tongue is powerful. Are you giving life with it or death with it? Problem is, is your tongue is naturally bent toward death. It's a result of the fall. Ever since the garden, the first sin, death was introduced to the human race, we've leaned toward death, especially with our speech. And there's reason for it. Some of us makes us, we feel smart when we're more critical. If I can poke holes in everything around me, it just kind of shows I'm smarter than those in charge. Somehow we believe that if, if, we can, uh, if, if we're negative, we speak death, it makes our own insecurities feel better. If I can tear everybody else down, they'll be at my level, and I'll feel better. But in reality, what we're really doing is we're just spreading death. We're killing everybody around us. We're repelling everybody around us. And some of us are right there. It is really hard to see in ourselves. But as with most of life, the proof is in the pudding. Not much positivity in the home, not much life in the marriage, not many good, fun, working relationships. You're just, you have a hard time having fun, and people seem to pull away from you after a while. And though you have an explanation for it all, the reality is you just speak in death, and you're killing everybody around you. James 3.8 unfolds in so many people's lives. It says, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We are naturally bent toward this, and some of our lives are defined by this right here which is why the third observation is so important. Edification takes effort. Make no mistake, edification seems like this weird word, Christian word, but make no mistake, it is a freaking art form. One that if you can master, you will find your relationships are healthier, your home is more fun, your leadership skyrockets, and life is just more enjoyable. It takes effort. It takes commitment. And for some of us, this idea of edification is like, a whole new life, a whole new way of life. If we were really honest with ourselves, evaluating ourselves fairly, we got work to do, don't we? I do. The other night, Nicole was working, and so I asked my girls, I said, what, do you, what do you guys want to do tonight? And they opted for a movie and popcorn and, and candy, which is like my kind of night. Like, so Nicole's leaving to, to go hiking with some friends in Colorado this week, and she kind of feels bad leaving the kids with me. I'm definitely milking that, but the truth is, you know how much candy we're going to pound that week? It's going to be awesome. I love that kind of stuff. So, so the other night, we go to the store, and girls, you know, they're in like the candy aisle, and they get their popcorn, and they're picking out their candy. And my youngest, she's you know, three, her name's Reese, she picks a big box of nerds. You know what nerds are, right? Like, yeah, my kind of girl. And we get home, we put the movie on, and uh, I pour a bunch of nerds in the, in the uh, bowl, and and I go sit down, and Reese grabs the bowl off the counter and then drops it on the kitchen floor. It's all over, like all over. And right away, she's like, sorry, Daddy, sorry. I'll, I'll pick them up. She's like trying to pick up each one. There's like thousands, though, because I gave a generous pour. I'm not like this crunchy, totalitarian dad. Let the kids have candy. But now it's all over my floor. I grab the vacuum, and, and I'm not being mean, but I just say, Reese, it always messes with you. And she hangs her head, and through tears, she gets out, it's because I'm widow, Dad. I'm just really widow. Like, Way to punch me in the gut. It's like a little comment. It was death. I could have been constructive. I could have taught her. could have shown her forgiveness from Daddy. Instead, it was just a little comment of death that came out. How often do I focus on instructing my kids more than constructing my kids? It's life or death or in the power of the tongue. Pay attention to your tongue this week. Every time you hang up the phone, every time you send a text, 
every time you hit the post button, every time you walk away from a conversation, ask yourself, was that life or death that I just gave? What did I just spread? Edification. We're going to answer to God for what we spread. My senior year in Bible college was a difficult year. Not academically, that was every year. But, uh, but mentally, it was a difficult year, and spiritually, it was a difficult year. I was, getting, I was about to get married, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Spent years studying for ministry, and for a few reasons, I, just, I didn't want to do ministry. I, I didn't want to work in a church. But I kind of felt stuck, like, well, my degree's in it. So I, I tried to uh, do radio, and I did get into radio. I was doing overnight traffic reporting in the, in the loop. A lot of traffic to report at 3 a.m. Wasn't sleeping well. Wasn't getting fantastic grades. Was making nothing. I was nervous about getting married and not having a job that could support a family. It was just a really tough season. And one of my professors, you might recognize the name. His name is Mike Kellogg. He used to do music through the night on Moody Radio. He was my speech professor. And he invited me after, after class to, to have lunch with him one day. And for two minutes, as we waited for our food, he just spoke life into me. Like he complimented my speeches and my writing that year and, and pushed me to stop running from what God had for me. And some of what he said was like great to hear. Felt great. You know, like, been teaching for decades, Junior. You got something in you. And some of it was hard to hear. You're scared of something. You got to change your heart, man. It was like this artful edification. Just two minutes long. I will never forget those two minutes. Because that two minutes of speaking life into me, just it, it, like it opened up something. Those two minutes ended a difficult season in my life. Like what I'm doing today, a lot of it I owe to that two minutes. I, I tell him like that still. A lot of it I owe to that, that lunch with an old man. That is powerful. The power lies in you. How are you using it? Truth is, your spouse needs life. Your kids need life. Your coworkers need life. Your friends need life. They need it, especially in a world that feels like a playground football field. Everyone's spreading death. We spread life. That's how we change the world. That power is in you. It's in your tongue. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.